Luis Navia struggles with the fact that now, in DEA custody, he may face life in prison. I was freaking out because I said, I'll do 10. I'll do 10. I said, you don't understand. You're looking at life. I go, wow. And uh, that's when, you know, reality sets in and they tell you about the guidelines and this and that. And that's when you have to put on your best outfit. That's when your mind has to be 100%. you got to be focused. You're in prison. That doesn't mean you're going to go nuts. Some people turn religious. Hey, all the power to them. I really, you know, I kept my beliefs. I've always believed in God. But uh, Ivan de la Vega, he got arrested too. He flipped out. He flipped out on that religious note. He went before a judge, and he actually told the judge, Judge, I'm beyond all that. Nothing can hurt me. You can give me anthrax, and it will not hurt me. So, I mean, he flipped out everybody, but he, he lost his wig. Welcome to Game of Crimes. So I knew this is true. I, 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 a friend of mine, they killed and they tortured and they fucked up. That's why we moved out of Cancun. And uh, I was pretty sure I was going to get thrown into those crocodiles. But we were three minutes away. So I suppose you never got an apology either. No, he sent champagne to the <laughs> table. He, he dropped me off at the hotel. You know, he, he said, you're so fucking, you're crazier than we are. Motherfucker, you are crazier than we are. And he dropped me off at the hotel like nothing. Hey, buena noche. I went up to the room. I walked in. Uh, it was still daylight. You know, this was, uh, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and my wife said, man, what happened to you? You look like shit. That must have been one hell of a tennis game. I said, yeah, it was. <laughs> and I took a shower. We went downstairs. We were staying at the Casa Magna. And uh, complimentary champagne, complimentary dinner. And from then on, any time I brought a load into Cancun, there could have been twenty or 30,000 kilos backlogged. My load would make it right up to the front because he was very happy that I had paid him his 250 And we, we, we kind of became friends. And now what he, a hell of a way to make friends, though. And then, I'm sorry. There's got to be yeah, easier yeah, ways. Yeah. You know who he was? He was a guy that was in Cancun. Uh, he used to, he's, he's one of the border Mexicans, you know, Mexican-Americans that live on the border. He was wanted in the U.S. for killing a family of six. What? <laughs> over, over a dope load? I don't know over what, but he, he was, you know, a fugitive in Mexico because he was a U.S. citizen, because he's a Mexican-American. He had whacked a family of six. That's what I heard. In the U.S. or in, the, in Mexico? No, no, U.S. Wow. He was wanted in the U.S. Crazy. Well, it's crazy, but I'm sitting here thinking about all this stuff because I want to ask you real quick, too, about uh, Mickey and the bodyguards, um, you know, the Lost Peppies guys, too, because that, that's another connection back to this. But how is it that through all—I mean, I don't want to say that you led a charmed life, but, I mean, you, you grew up, you know, very privileged, obviously, but the fact that you've made it out of these kidnappings, the fact that you've, you've, had, you've had people around you die, but yet here you are today, you're still standing. I mean— how? I truly believe in God. <laughs> Let me tell you. I, I personally am a true believer that there is something else besides 
these little screwed up bodies we're in that makes the real things happen. Um, I just can't possibly, you know, uh, uh, some kind of guardian force, guardian angel, uh, something for some reason didn't want me to die those days. There's, uh, I guess there, uh, there's something else I got to do in life or whatever, but it wasn't my time to go. Um, the 25 years in this business with crazy people, um, you can't plan that. That just happened. Um, but you know, it, it's, I don't know, but, uh, surviving these things are off the wall. In my case, um, you know, it, it happened three times, but uh, off-the-wall situations. For, for Rasguña to let me go is totally the, well, the odds. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's like, that's like you should have been you should have played the lottery. Your odds of winning the lottery were better than having Rasguña let you go. That's, when I read that in your book, I thought you've got to be the first person that ever survived a kidnapping by him. Uh, well, that's a good record to have. Yeah. There was a joke that there were bets out in Colombia, not, not, not actual bets, but people were talking that he won't come back from this one. He won't come back from this one. Another one that they said I wouldn't come back from. Nobody kidnapped me on this one. But Steve knows. Steve knows. I went, uh, I, I was doing a, an airdrop with Ivan Urdinola. Ivan Urdinola is a guy that is so volatile, so dangerous, that Rasguño knew I was working on and off with Ivan Urdinola. And he used to tell me, the only thing I ask you is don't ever put any of my merchandise with Ivan's merchandise. Because that's one motherfucker I don't want to have to deal with. That's how volatile, crazy Ivan was. So I go and I pack. I personally go with a couple of my guys and we pack a thousand kilos for an airdrop. And we weren't going to airdrop all 1,000 kilos, but we were going to do a load of uh, 600. And then there was more merchandise that he was going to bring over. But we wrapped, wrapped a thousand uh, for airdrop. The, the the load was canceled, so I go back to Bogota. And then uh, a week later, uh, we're on again, and the plane's ready to come. And I call Ivan, I tell him, the merchandise, is it still there? I mean, are you sure it's there? I mean, the, the one we, we, we wrapped? He said, yeah, 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 nobody's touched that merchandise. He used to talk really fast, really fast. And I says, okay, so I'm going to send the plane. So sure enough, I send the plane, they put the 600 kilos on the plane, and I airdrop it to my friend here in the Florida Keys, George Cabrera. He's in the book. That shit hits the, the, the ocean, and it splatters all over the place. They had taken my 600 kilos that I had aired, uh, wrapped for an airdrop and sent them to Mexico. In Mexico, you land. You don't need to airdrop uh, to, to wrap anything. The kilos just, like, they come from the, from the lab, from the... You know, when you airdrop, when you wrap it for airdropping, you put them like in a condom, like in a plastic condom, you know, airtight. So they sent mine to Mexico, and they gave me the ones that weren't uh, wrapped for airdrop. Ivan Urdinol is a guy that he doesn't care if somebody else's fault, if the guy put it on the plane or the guy put it on the wrong plane and they took your. It's your fault. It's your fault. And uh, amazingly, amazingly enough, the guy didn't charge me for that. And that's another situation that they said, this guy will not live out of this one. And sure enough, he believed me. He knew it was his fault. But Ivan isn't that kind of guy. Ivan doesn't give a shit. If it's your fault, it's never his fault. So those are, 
The first day I met Ivan, he liked me so much. He had a car dealership. We met at his car. He gave me a, 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 a BMW 535M with an Alpine gearbox. I mean, hell of a car in Colombia. He just gave it to me. I, I just have a, a knack for these crazies. I don't know why. I guess I'm so different from them. And now you're talking to the crazy Morgan Wright. <laughs> well, you know, it kind of goes with the business, though. I mean, you're in a crazy business, and you're going to run into crazy people. So, but, hey, again, I, I but I don't want to bypass this because, again, it's the connections back. So talk about the bodyguards, uh, and, you know, and Lost Peppies, because uh, you had a connection because um, one of the things we talked about with uh, JP and Murph, you know, was the, the the rise of Lost Peppies, what they were really doing. But you actually had to run in because I wanted to kind of tie off on Pablo before we start getting into Operation Journey, you know, and the, and the final uh, operation that brought you down. So just give us the quick, you know, the, the quick view of uh, tell us about that. For many years, I worked with a guy. His name was Mickey Ramirez. He was one of the original guys uh, with Evaristo Porras. Uh, one of the guys from the mid-70s um, that was in the Medellin cartel. And um, he was very good friends with Fernando Galeano. And then for many, uh, for many years, we worked with Fernando Galeano, who was Pablo's partner, um, using his planes and his merchandise and uh, doing a lot of airdrops in Bahamas, uh, Mexico loads, and basically Mickey... Um, we got all the merchandise from Fernando, and we moved it for him. So um, when Pablo kills Fernando at, in the jail, Pablo calls for Mickey, and he comes to my house, and he says, Senador, because he used to call me Senator, he goes, Senador, de esta puede ser que no regrese. He says, Senator, from this one, I don't think I, I may be coming back. He thought he was being called because uh, they, they were going to whack him too. So it's like when they call you, it's better that you go than they, they send for you. And um, they had already killed Mario, Fernando's brother, and they had killed uh, Kiko. Fernando and Kiko were, were killed in La Catedral uh, by Pablo. Mario and William were killed in Medellin by Pablo's guys. And they made them sign over scriptures of uh, uh, land, merchandise. Pablo uh, held them, and they had to turn over merchandise that they, they had in the States, planes, everything. So um, Mickey gets called, and he, 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 uh, he goes, and he comes back. And when he comes back, um, that's when they start forming Los Pepes. Uh, but... Uh, I kind of went ahead of myself a bit. The night they killed, the day they killed Fernando, that they found out they killed uh, Fernando Galeano, Mickey goes uh, to cry, uh, a llorarlo, they say in Spanish, a llorarlo, like to, to mourn his death to my apartment. And um, uh, he has some marachis come over and stuff, and they're, you know, uh, playing and playing. And uh, my wife came out and said, you know, you know, give these guys a break, and Mickey didn't want to give them a break, this and that, and finally, uh, Mickey tells my wife, well, I'll give them a break, you do a favor for me, uh, there's going to be a service for Fernando in Bogota tomorrow, I can't go, because it's going to be watched, so uh, you go in my place, and uh, 
pay my respects to Fernando. Fernando's body wasn't there. Obviously, it was just a service for Fernando. And so that was um, very kind of strange. <laughs> but uh, she did. And But he mourned Fernando in my apartment. And uh, after that, they formed Los Pepes. And that's when they uh, they went after Pablo. And most Steve knows all about that. But that's the origin. Uh, uh, the origin of Los Pepes. It was uh, Mickey and Carlos Castaño, Rasguño was part of it, eh, Don Berna, uh, people that used to be Pablo's partners, and they just, uh, you know, got really pissed that he, he killed Fernando. And Did the, did the Rodrigo Soroyo brothers out of Cali, were they funding Los Pepes? Yes. Yes. They they were most they they were hit for the money they they, they were funding them because uh, the Orrehuela brothers um, they knew that eventually Pablo was going to get them they did not have peace they must have been taking fifty Xanaxes a day because they could have been inside a fucking bank vault and they'd figure one of Pablo's guys was going to get them anyway they were they knew that their days were limited because there's one thing about Pablo he was good at what he did. And he was amazing, amazing. So it took the DEA, the CIA, the Colombian military, the Pepes, the Cali cartel. It took, you know, the whole world against one guy. Steve knows it. You know, he was a bad guy, but you got to give credit. You know, a Cesar lo que es de Cesar. He was amazing. And the Rodriguez brothers, they were terrified. Now, one son of a bitch that was very, uh, he was one tough guy. And he uh, took the lead against Pablo was Pacho Herrera. Pacho Herrera. The Rodriguez brothers were funding it, but the guy who really took the lead in, uh, you know, from the Cali side was Pacho Herrera. He put a bomb in Pablo's building. That's part of the, you know, they had a war going on for a while there. But uh, it took all those guys to come together to bring down one man. But that just shows you the power of having all that kind of money. But the other thing he instilled, too, was fear. You know, he instilled fear in people. There's one thing about Pablo. Uh, you can fuck with his people, the people that are running his routes. Uh, that, but don't ever mess with his hitmen. His hitmen were the most important thing for him. And it was a bond they respected him. They would do anything. They would jump off a cliff for Pablo. His hitmen were like his number one assets. You don't mess with his hitmen. He protected them to the end. He would die for them, and he, they would die for him. And that's what made him so strong, that he had a tremendous army of people and very loyal, very capable hitmen. And he basically had you know, all, all of Medellin at his disposition. But um, he had quite a crew of guys. Uh, Steve knows these motherfuckers. They, they were smart, smart, smart. They kidnapped uh, a presidential candidate, uh, you know, uh, Pastrana. Uh, I think the worst president that ever, <laughs> you know, in Colombia in history. But uh, they were off the wall. The stuff they were doing, it was off the wall. Who who would you say was the actual leader of Los Pepes? Was it Don Berna? I would say Don Berna. Don Berna used to be Fernando Galeano's bodyguard. He used to work for Fernando Galeano. As a matter of fact, when they 
did an attempt on Fernando, Don Berna took like 17 shots. You know, he's, he's, you know, he carries a towel and he kind of, he's a little deformed because of the, he took 17 shots. But I would say Don Berna, you know, Rasguño was an important part because uh, Cartago is the entrance to El Valle. Uh, you know, the Castaño brothers. But Don Berna was, I would say. And Don Berna come up to the, to the search block. You know, he he had the blessing of the Attorney General Gustavo de Grief, and he was going to be part of the self surrender program. Um, and so he had, you know, de Grief called Colonel Martinez and told him, "Hey, uh, you know, this guy's good to work with." And no, we never trusted the guy. But you know, Javier, you know, we were running the eight hundred number, offering a five million dollar reward there in Colombia, and a lot of people want to talk to us because we were gringos. So we would meet these people, and we typically meet them at the Medellin bus stop. You know, and we would, the clops would go out, we'd do pre-surveillance, make sure it wasn't a setup to kill us. Well, there were times when there were no Columbia police officers, you know, the Daheen guys, that's who we worked with. When they weren't available, Don Burns guys would protect us. And I got to tell you, you know, we go out early, they'd walk through the bus station to make sure it wasn't a setup. Nobody ever screwed with us when his people were around. Everybody else knew who they were except us. Oh, no, us. no, no, he was... He, he, he was extremely powerful, completely ran the Medellin underworld. Remember, um, he ran, uh, first he had that collection, La Terraza. La Terraza was like a collection agency for, for bad guys. If you got some guy owed you some money for Coke, they collect. Can you imagine collecting from bad guys, how bad you got to be? Then he had, Pablo had the Oficina de Envigado. That was his collection office, and then Don Berna took it over. Oficina de Envigado was very rough characters there. And uh, Don Berna was a very tough guy, and uh, forget about it. You had his protection, you, 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 anything. Well, you know, a funny story, after, after Pablo was dead, you know, we were, we were in Medellin, and, and uh, I, wasn't, I was back in Bogota. Javier was in Medellin. And they went to a safe house with the Colombian police officers, and, and Don Berna was there. And this is still before anybody knew he was the leader of Los Pepes or even involved with Los Pepes. I mean, they knew he was a bad guy. He was a bodyguard for Galeano and all that. Very tight with uh, Kiko Moncada. But uh, at this party, he offers Javier this watch that's worth like $100,000. And, you know, Javier's like, hey, I can't, you know, I'm American age. I can't take that from you. We're not allowed to take gifts. And one of the Colombian cops come over and whispers in Javier's ear. He said, you better take that. They might find you out there in a ditch. You know, so, so Don Berner gave him this, this gift of this $100,000 watch. Of course, we, you know, Javier did the paperwork, turned it into the, to the government here in the United States. But it's just funny how, and then later, you know, we find out who Don Berner really is. He's associated with the Los Pepes. And just like you, we're saying, oh, the good Lord is, is the one that protected us through all this because you're hanging out with these mass murderers. Totally. That's exactly what these and guys are. Anything could go sideways at any point. You know, um, that watch is probably sitting next to Bob's bow ties. Because <laughs> they all, yeah. <laughs> or somebody in Washington is wearing it. It's starting to sound like old home week. Oh, Steve, it's like, oh, we didn't know we were related. You so, have to uh, turn it in. But, um, you know, Don Berna was way up on, on, on the power level. He was uh, the main guy with, you know, heading those papers, him and, and the Castaño brothers. But um, 
uh, Mickey, at that time, I was hanging out with Mickey in Bogota, and he was part of Los Pepes, and yeah, he got he got uh, bodyguards from the government, uh, armored cars, machine guns. They were all hanging out with government official cards and stuff. Uh, you know, I remember uh, those, those things that the grave gave out, those amnesty papers. What were they? Like amnesty papers? You know, Rasguño. They were called self-surrender, and you were you were absolved. You plead guilty to one crime, absolved, yeah. and everything else. And when Rasguño got his, we had a party at Mondongos, that restaurant in Bogota. We all got together at Mondongos and showed me his paper. I said, "Well, that's nice. <laughs> so I guess you're 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 free to go." I was going to say, let's see if we all have something in common here, real quick. So Steve's ate there. I've ate there. Did you eat at Montserrat? Yes, I lived close to Mon Montserrat. Uh, no. Mon I, I lived uh, I, I I lived close to Tramonti, which is uh, up in La Calera, uh, up in uh, you know there. But Montserrat, yeah, that's the one that the uh, the telescopic thing. The, the yeah, you got to yeah. take the cable car and the go cable up to car. the top. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look at that again, small world. It is, and and one one quick story about Mickey Ramirez. Javier and I went and met with him, you know, during the self surrender period, and and this is. Based on did he scam me out of any money? No, he didn't. He was he was. Uh, it, well, here's the funny thing: the grief had blessed it, you know. So we had the authorization of the attorney general to meet with him. It was me and Javier and one agent from headquarters, uh, a guy named Barry Abbott, who was super super guy for us. We went with one bodyguard. We pulled up to a restaurant on on Quince in the northern part of the city. There, there's carloads of Mickey Ramirez bodyguards. I mean, they it was like an army out there. But here's the funny thing. One of the one of the bodyguards we recognize from Gustavo degree from the Attorney General's person personal protection That's detail. That's incredible. So we knew right then this is all bullshit. This is just you know it's a it's a it was ridiculous. Totally, That's what it was. I, uh, even I I said this is ridiculous. This is crazy. These guys actually have you know passports to to go around town and with bodyguards from the government and you know uh submachine guns and everything like they'd walk into a restaurant and everybody had their machine guns everybody was dressed in black suits just off the wall um el buque the rest there was a, a, a seafood restaurant i think they called el buque up there he used to meet a lot of people there all right so Louis, let's put a pin now here and say, let's start talking now about what the big thing is. That, that's what we're here to talk about. It's about Operation Journey. It's about what led to your final arrest and, you know, obviously a huge change in your life. So let me just read just a bit of this uh, quick bit of the uh, press release. And this comes from the front of the book. So if you guys haven't got it yet, go to Amazon.com. Uh, it's Pure Narcos or Pure Narco. And uh, Luis, real quick before I read this, have you guys established, do you guys have a website for the book or does it just, just go to Amazon? Goes to Amazon. Okay, yeah, just go to Amazon because it's on it's on Audible, it's on Amazon, um, and again, Pure Nacro by Jesse Fink and Louis Navia, um, and but here, what's interesting, the press release, he, Louis doesn't pull any punches. It, right at the front of the book, here's what it says: Saturday, August twenty six, two thousand, Operation Journey dismantles Colombian organization that shipped cocaine to twelve nations, nearly twenty five tons of cocaine seized. So, it was a joint. Um, Interagency Task Force between the DEA and U.S. Customs Service announced the conclusion of Operation Journey, a two-year multinational initiative against a Colombian drug transportation organization that used commercial vessels to haul multi-ton loads of cocaine to 12 countries, most of them in Europe and North America. 
Uh, I will skip forward a little bit. We're going to talk about Ivan uh, De La Vega. But what I thought was um, the U.S. agents were able to document the movement of at least 68 tons of cocaine by this organization over a three-year period. At the retail level, this amount of cocaine could generate roughly $3 billion in Europe alone. Several of these uh, shipments were intercepted. Most had occurred before agents learned about them. Operation Journey culminated during the past two weeks with enforcement actions in Venezuela and Europe. As a result, uh, Ivan was arrested, and Luis, you were arrested by Venezuelan authorities and eventually extradited to the United States. So before we get to the end, because now we kind of see the broad strokes here, let's talk about the operations, the things that led up to the eventual arrest. So were you aware at the time? I mean, you knew about the customs uh, uh, investigation because you were you were under indictment. But were you aware of this interagency task force between DEA and customs and the fact that they were working this operation against you and your organization at the time? No idea. No idea. Um, I left. I left the. Uh, I left this hemisphere, <laughs> and went to, to Europe after working for about a year. Um, Jamaica. We we had a, an incredible situation, an incredible route to Jamaica. We we did like 10, 12 trips to Jamaica, and then um, you know I, I shut that down. And then decided to move to Europe. Uh, at that time, uh, I was going to handle freighters to transport because I had I wanted nothing more to do with the U.S. My last things that I the, the last merchandise I ever sent to the U.S. was from Jamaica, so I wanted to concentrate and go to Europe. Uh, European law enforcement is not as proactive uh, as American law enforcement, and I felt that I'd be better off living in Europe and working. Uh, and Louis, before we go farther, this is a question I also wanted to clarify, because you, like you said, you're operating in multiple hemispheres, multiple countries. Did you maintain using your true identity, or did you end up using any kind of false documents, passports, f- false names to conceal yourself? No, totally. I had uh, different passports with different nationalities, uh, Guatemalan, uh, Dominican, uh, Mexican, um, Venezuelan, Colombian, um, yeah, I, I, I always worked with uh, uh, different identities. And when I went to Europe, I went as a Mexican. What was your name in Europe? Novoa. See, I, I didn't want to change my names, my the initials, because I had my monogram shirts. I figured it might as well. It's cheaper to, <laughs> it's cheaper to keep some kind of, you know, same initials. That way I don't have to throw away the shirts. It was expensive shirts. Well, yeah, and you're, so that would be a good dead giveaway if your initials are MR and your name is, you know, Luis Navia. Ah, no, sorry, you know, I'm, I stole somebody else's shirts. Oh, come on, man. You, you, you had the money. You could have afforded new shirts. Well, there you go. I had this great tailor in Mexico, Mario Peliza. He used to do the uh, shirts for the president of Mexico, and he was awesome. And I just kept the shirts, but I used, you know, Luis Novo or whatever, you know. <laughs> Well, but it's smart, too, because you also, by using your first name like that, too, it's like, Steve, it's, it's typical undercover stuff. Right. You don't want to use a completely different name because then if we, we talked about this with Dominic Polifron because he was, you know, he used the name Dominic as his first name, um, you know, doing UC work. So, you, I mean, you got all these different identities and stuff. So now you're in Europe as Luis, would you say Novio? Uh, Novoa. 
Navoa. All right. So now you're in Europe. So let's continue on from there. So you're operating under false identities. You've got multiple passports. And now you're operating in Europe because you think the heat's not as bad there as it would have been, you know, over here. So what happens from here? Well, um, I start working with this organization. And before they were shipping from Panama into Suriname, picking up rice in Suriname, and then taking it across to Europe and loading, loading the ships. So what I decided to do was buy ships in Europe and base them out of Greece. And then instead of going from Panama to Suriname, which is that Caribbean hot zone, we were going to come from Greece, go to Africa, pick up, um, you know, loads in Africa of, uh, you know, uh, legal cargo, go to Brazil, and then go up to Venezuela into the Rio Orinoco and then ship out of there. So basically, I was in, I was living in Greece already. I, I was living in Greece. I had set up the office in Greece. I had set up the office in Milano, and we were buying the ships, and everything was going right, and we were setting up these uh, shipments, and we were going to ship, you know, uh, five to 6,000 kilos at a time. And, and, you know, we did a couple uh, runs, and everything was working fine. So... Um, I, I always knew, and I, I told the, uh, these people that were supplying the merchandise, I told them, eventually this is going to be our downfall, the paper trail. You cannot be a smuggler and be shipping cocaine and, uh, having to have, uh, you know, when, when the ship is working legal loads, having legal, uh, you know, crews, and then switching them to illegal crews. We even had a recruiting office in Bangladesh and in the Philippines. And those recruiting offices used to, uh, you know, outsource and hire the illegal crews. The legal crews were mostly Ukrainian, okay? So this was just a, a cluster uh, complete uh, because it was too complicated. It, you know, and when you're running a cocaine business, the the least complicated and, and definitely no paper trail. So um, we bought these ships. We were shipping the coke. You know, everything was, was going well. And then I was living in Europe. And um, the last two ships we bought, they asked me to go, go back to Venezuela to um, meet with Ivan de la Vega. Uh, he was supposed to, you know, look, look at the uh, ships we were buying to see where they were going to put the stash and, you know, make sure that the ships were up to par. So I didn't want to travel back to, to uh, this part of the world. I was already in Europe, and I was fine there, and I felt that traveling back to this part of the world was a bit of a, a security breach for me. And sure enough, I go to Venezuela, and when I get to Venezuela, um, the organization in Venezuela that Ivan was handling was already compromised they already had a an infiltrated guy inside that organization and um all he knew was that a guy from greece was coming so uh i was the guy from greece but when i show up there is no guy from greece there's a guy from mexico and then they you know uh, well who the hell is this guy so they were already following everybody and it was you know they, they they had a guy infiltrated but they didn't know who i was 
and they couldn't figure it out. So they um, they got my fingerprints off a glass in a restaurant. They were watching us. We were at a restaurant, and uh, they picked up a glass that had my fingerprints, and that's when they ran the prints, sent them back to, to the U.S. Where was the restaurant at? In Caracas. We were in Caracas. Okay. And so, and it comes back that it's Luis Navia, and uh, that's when... By and Luis Navia is wanted by the United States exactly for an indictment. Ah, yeah. by protocol, they have to uh, call the person that has your indictment. He's the one that's handling your situation. In this case, it was Bob Harley. Remember, I had already uh, skipped on Bob Harley a couple times, and, and once in Cancun, uh, and another time in Panama. We know because you kept sending. Christmas cards and bow ties. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, yeah. I kept poking that damn bear. <laughs> I'm telling you, this, this shit I would think was out of a movie. Like, say, so you can't make this stuff up. Because my first thought, I looked at it and said, oh, yeah, you're full of shit. And then, you know, it's like, no, you're, you're taunting him. You, you are taunting him. And it's not going to age well. No, it was not a good idea. It turned out, thank God I fell into his hands because he's a good man. Yeah, I guess I'm a good man, too. I, I was just in, 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 in a bad business. But he's a great guy. Bob Harley and Eric Kolbinski, they're both great guys. Um, so, you know, Operation Journey, the thing is, you know, we all knew that the United States was hotter than a pistol. And the U.S. government's very proactive and will go after you wherever you're at. So we started shipping Coke to Europe, where we, we got better pricing, too. We, uh, the price was much better, to, you know, uh, 28000 30000 33000 um, So we started shipping Coke to Europe and uh, doing very well. Uh, the organization was doing very well. It was probably the most powerful organization shipping Coke at the time to Europe. Nobody was shipping more Coke to Europe than we were. And... Um, problem is, I get to Venezuela and... You know, we're, we're, it, you know, the security's already compromised. There's, you know, we're infiltrated, and I didn't know that. So um, when I get there, you know, we, we were ready to do a load. We had a ship coming into Puerto Ordaz. The thing is that we used to use Guyana, which is, if you look at the Orinoco River Delta, it's huge. The Orinoco River Delta is just huge. The Everglades is nothing compared to the Orinoco River Delta. And uh, we had a, uh, we called it a fish station, where you, we used to airdrop merchandise. Uh, some boats used to pick it up, and you, we used to hide them in these big things that looked like phone booths, and we used to put them underground. And we 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 had we stored we had at that point we had twenty five thousand kilos stashed in the Orinoco River Delta, all destined for Europe. So, you know when. When the ship arrived in Puerto Ordaz, we had to offload the Russian crew. So we offloaded the Russian crew. They came to Venezuela, to Caracas. And one of the nights, uh, I had to take $30,000 to give to the Russian captain because they, they were going to be offloaded. And then we were going to put on the, uh, the illegal crew that was going to, you know, do the trip with the coke. Um, the first night I go to the uh, to the hotel and I give the Russian captain the $30,000, I go there the first night, and then I take a taxi. 
And the second night I go there, uh, I leave, and just so happens that I take the same taxi. The same taxi driver picks me up. And he said, listen, by the way, last night when I picked you up, after I picked you up, I was interrogated for three hours by the Guardia Nacional because they're suspecting you of uh, narco-trafficking. And I go, what? That's impossible. I'm a, I'm a Mexican businessman, and I'm putting on my Mexican accent. Que no, que soy un empresario mexicano, como se le ocurre, es un insulto. Voy a tener que hablar con la embajada, lo que sea, uh, all this Mexican accent. But I told the guy, you know what? I suffer from high blood pressure. This is definitely giving me high blood pressure. Wanted to stop the car. I gave him 50 bucks, and I got off. And I said, we're fucked. This, what this guy's telling me is completely off the wall. He's telling me he got stopped, and, and they questioned him for three hours. They're on to us. They're on to us. Now, I had heard before that one of the uh, workers that we had in uh, Puerto Ordaz had found like a monitor under the car. And I said, what? They, they, they said they found a, a, a tracking device under the car. I said, wait a minute. And you didn't get suspicious? And no, no, but we sent the car to Maracaibo. I said, oh, my God. I was already a little nervous. But then this was, you know, uh, weeks before. But we continued. But when this taxi driver tells me this, I, I realized we're royally fucked. So I told my girlfriend, get ready. Just leave the hotel like if nothing. And uh, I'll meet you somewhere and pick you up. And I picked her up. And uh, I called Ivan right away. And I told him what was going on. He didn't believe it. Says, if you don't believe it, that's fine. But I'm getting out of here. So we went uh, from uh, Caracas. We went uh, to to La Guaira, where, where the airport's at. And um, we headed to Maracaibo. Uh, I mean, I knew, I knew that it was totally over. It was totally over. I mean, uh, such a successful operation. Uh, I, I didn't know, you know, how it got infiltrated. I, you know, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that, it, you know, that it was over. And um, the thing is that um, somehow or the other, uh, I, lo I lost my passport. Now I, I realize I think the DEA went into the room and took my passport, my Mexican passport. So. I went to Maracaibo, and uh, I you sneaky little bastards, Murph. Would you have done? Would you have done something like that? Never, absolutely never. And I'm being serious. I'm not joking. We wouldn't do that. I, I don't know how it happened, and to this day, I don't know. Eric, I don't know. I don't. It doesn't. I don't think he he did it, or I don't think the agency did it. But I don't know the Venezuelans. It's Joint International Task Force. There, there was all all kinds of uh, law enforcement agencies there. The point is, I, I'm, I'm in Maracaibo, and I can't go nowhere. I'm trying to cross the border to Colombia, and I don't have a passport. So I had to call this lady that handles my passports in Guatemala to bring me a new passport. So she had to travel from Guatemala to Venezuela, and I had to wait for three days for her to get there. because you know. And these were your fake passports, right? These were the false ones that were being made for you? Yeah, these are my fake passports. And uh, uh, finally, she gets there. She gives me a new passport. And, um, you know, I'm ready to cross the border. We have a taxi waiting. He's going to take us across the border. So I decided to shave, you know, I used to use a beard. And uh, I went into a barber shop to take a shave. 
and I'm relaxing, you know. I'm just saying, okay, let me relax, take a shave. And while I'm taking a shave, you know, I, I hear, eh, quieto, Guardia Nacional, está bajo sospecha de narcotráfico. It's like seven, you know, uh, Venezuelan National Guards standing there. And I got this barber with a razor like this. And I was more scared of the barber than than, than the cops. I said, this <laughs> idiot's going to cut my juggler vein. Going to slice my neck, yeah. You know, sitting in a barber's chair, you know. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, this is screwed up, and my mind right away goes to the piece of paper I had in my pocket, which was the uh, uh, piece of paper with the codes for the ship, the 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 codes that the ship is going to use while it's uh you know crossing the Atlantic. Uh, I remember it was peanuts, one two three. Um, peanuts, all the all the letters are different. Then you put a number, and then you know that's how you talk, and then you can relay messages, and then you have things like you know. Uh, um, you know, it, it's a sunny day. It means everything's good. Or you know, you know, I'm at the barber shop. It means uh, you know the helicopters are up above. You have a bunch of codes to communicate. You know how everything's going while the ship is crossing the Atlantic. Um, so we have a ship in Puerto Ordaz ready to go, and yet I'm I'm, I'm hightailing out of there because I know everything's screwed up. But How big is the load on the ship? So you're, you're that was going to be five thousand, five thousand kilos. Now nothing's happened yet, but I get tipped off, and I'm not about to wait. So I get tipped off, and I leave Caracas, and I go to Maracaibo. So I'm hanging out in Maracaibo, and uh, it, it's crazy. I was with my girlfriend. I don't know what it is, but like I don't know if it was, the adrenaline works backwards, but. You know, I'm having sex like three or four times a day because I think I don't know if the nervous system went berserk on me or what, but there's nothing else. I was very nervous. Either that or your thought is I'm going to prison pretty soon, so I'm going to get a bunch of it before I go. That's it. Really, really weird. And, uh, you know, we, we have to check into all these uh, like um, sex motels because, you know, we don't have any papers. We don't have anything. And here I am waiting in Maracaibo for this chick to arrive with my paperwork. But um, uh, we're there in Maracaibo, and um, suddenly, um, you know, like I said, I got my paperwork, and then I, I went to the barbershop, and I'm worried about this, uh, you know, because I'm still saying I'm a Mexican businessman, and I'm talking Mexican accent, the whole nine yards, but I have this piece of paper in my back pocket. So I said, listen, let's just be real, you know, civilized about this. We're in a mall. We're in a barbershop. Let's just take this over here to where, you know, we're not so visible. And I'm talking to them, and I'm moving, walking back, because I saw that there was, like, two washing machines in the back where they wash the stuff to put on your face and then the towels and all that. And I figured, I got to get rid of this paper, because this paper will kill me. Uh, so I walk like this, da 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 before, and then I stick my hand in, and I dump the paper in the washing machine. And then, you know... Then I, I calmed down a bit. They still took me away, but at least I didn't have the paper on me. So these guys put me in a Suburban. They drive me out of that mall. And uh, they start saying, you know, we're going to cut you up in little pieces. Or it's good cop, bad cop. There's a Colombian guy, a Colombian cop, and a Venezuelan cop. Venezuelan guy says, you know, my expertise is with the uh, bisturi, the surgeon's uh, knife, and I'm going to cut you till you bleed to death. But I want to know where's the merchandise and where's the money and where's George. 
George was one of the guys that was heading the operation over there in uh, Guyana. And um, I'm saying, I don't know about George. I don't know a George. I'm a Mexican. You know, you've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong guy in this this and that and going back and forth. Uh, they take me to a police station in Maracaibo. They put me in a room that has a steel chair bolted to the ground. The, the room is all painted in white, but it's got blood splattered all over the wall. So they're telling me, you know, they're, they're putting me in that chair. And the Venezuelan says, I'm just going to come back and I'm going to start working on you. Somehow or the other, I didn't believe the guy. I didn't believe the guy. Um, I just didn't believe him. I was scared. I was scared. I, I, once again, what do you, if you tell me that that's going to happen to me, I say, I, I'd freak out. I'd be yelling. I'd be screaming. I'd be going nuts. But no. You know, I just didn't believe the guy. I kept my cool. And um, we're going back and forth, back and forth. Finally, you know, obviously they didn't chop me up into little pieces. But they put me inside a Suburban. And I'm sitting in the back, just sitting there. And suddenly I, I look to my right. And I see these long, two skinny legs. And the knees come to about here. And I said to myself, wow, we're royally fucked. The gringos are here. Because, you know, I'm surrounded by all these military-dressed guys, Guarda Nacional, and shit. See these two long, skinny legs next to the suburban, they're talking, <laughs> and he's talking to the military guys. He says, oh, my God, who else would wear, like, shorts, sandals, and a Hawaiian shirt? It's 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 the American. Chris Feistel. That's who it is, Murph. It's Chris Feistel. Well, it's close. It's close. <laughs> and I go, we are royally fucked. So this guy comes in the car. Sure enough, he looks like Sam Elliott, the mustache, great looking guy. I said this, you know, um, it says, hi, I'm Eric Kolbinski. I work with the DEA. I look at this guy. I says, you, you must have gotten laid more times than I did in Colombia. You're this is. You know, a super good-looking, like, American agent, uh, shorts, Hawaiian shirt. And he uh, says, you know, Mr. Navia, <laughs> you know, obviously you're going back to the United States. No, you're, you're, I'm not Mr. Navia. I'm a Mexican citizen, and I want to talk to the Mexican embassy and the Mexican ambassador. This, Mr. Navia, you're going back to the States. You have two options. Either you cooperate with us and you come back. Or we're going to leave you here in a Venezuelan jail, which your chances of survival are minimum. And I knew that for a fact that once he got in there, probably the people in Colombia were going to have us whacked. So um, he said, you know, I'll tell you what, we're going to end this real quick because I'm going to put somebody on the phone that actually knows you. And uh, I said, you must... I don't know what you're talking about. He calls Bob Harley and puts Bob Harley on the phone and says, uh, Mr. Navia, this is Bob Harley. I've been to your house on Key Biscayne and I've spoken to your sister and I see you're in custody. I go, I, I kept saying that I was a Mexican and Bob said, Louis, you went to Belen Jesuit Prep. You went to Georgetown. So let's. Plus, I got your nice bow ties and a postcard from you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're coming back to the States. I suggest you, you cooperate uh, with the uh, agent. And I said, you know what, Bob? Uh, you know what? I didn't say Bob. I said, you know what? You're right. Yeah, no problem. I handed the phone back to, uh, to Eric. Eric was very nice and treated me with a lot of respect. They took me up to a, a military base. 
um, and then we were there for about a day. We slept there. You know, I gave the uh, captain of the military base $200 so he could let me sleep with my girlfriend for the last time in, in the air-conditioned room he had because everybody else was sleeping like in hammocks. So I gave the guy oh, 200 geez. bucks. He let, let me sleep in his air-conditioned room. And then I see these trucks pulling up and a shitload of merchandise being offloaded from these trucks. And I go, what the fuck? That's our merchandise. And they offloaded 17,000 some odd kilos there, plus another 5,000 that they found later on. Total was about 25 tons. Oh, my god! They found the 25 tons that we had stashed in the uh, Orinoco River Delta. And I said, fuck, man, this is, this is crazy. And then, you know, they never tied me up. They never handcuffed me or anything. And I asked one of the guards, and I paid him some money. said, let me make a phone call to my kids in Mexico. And um, he let me make the phone call, and I called. It must have been like 2.30 in the afternoon in Mexico. And I called the house, and the maid answered. And my daughter was um, at school. And my wife wasn't there at home, but my son, Santi, who was, um, you know, three years old, got on the phone and said, and says, Papa, Papa, Google, Gaga, Giga, Papa, did it. But, you know, he, he spoke, but, you know, he was only three, so he spoke like, you know, like a baby. And, um, well, that's the first time I cried because I realized I'm not going to see my son in. 25 or 30 years because at that time you figure they're going to give you 25 or 30 years and uh it broke my heart and i cried and definitely i wasn't going to make a run for it because you know i was overweight and eric kobinski's legs you know there was i wasn't going to get too far uh could not run him so you know I took it, and I, the one thing I said, you know, before, you know, Eric told me, you're going to the United States. Pretty soon the U.S. Marshals are going to be here in the jet, and you're going back. But they never extradited me from Venezuela. They never arrested me in Venezuela. They just told the Venezuelans. I had to take a picture, and Eric told me, put Novoa on it. And it they took a picture, and the Venezuelan authorities thought that they had a guy named Novoa. That didn't ring a bell. If they would have said Navia, they may have kept me in Venezuela. Because I think I had an incident in Venezuela with one of the planes years ago. We used to keep our planes in Venezuela. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, you know, um, one thing I said, I'm not going to go back to the United States looking like a bum. I need a shower, and I need you to go out and get me a nice clean shirt. And khaki pants and some topsiders. I'm not going to go back looking like a bum. Sure enough, you know, paid the Venezuelan guys. I gave them my size. They came back with a beautiful white polo shirt, khakis, topsiders. And, um, you know, I took a shower. And sure enough, the Suburbans pulled up, like seven Suburbans. For them, it was a nightmare because the traffic going down to Caracas, it could have lent itself to the problems if, we actually did have a plan in place to, to, to free me or for, for something like that. It's, it's a nightmare when you're dealing with that and there's traffic and just a lot of uh, uncontrollable va variables. But uh, we went to the private airport down in uh, La Carlota. It's, 
I think it was called, La Carlota. And sure enough, that C-130 pulled up in the Marshalls. Very nice. Would you like some Oreo cookies? Would you like chocolate chip cookies for the ride? Would you, would you like Dr. Pepper? Would you like coffee? <laughs> Everything. The only thing you can't take, Mr. Nami, is what you got in your pocket. I had five boxes of Xanax. Those anti-anxiety pills, and they just went like that. <laughs> you won't be needing these anymore. So they got me off everything. Uh, Xanax, liquor, Coke, everything. They cleaned my act up real quick. And it was really a relief. You know, when I sat on that plane, Eric was next to me. And I said, you know what? I used to call him Kapinski. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't hear Kolbinski. I, I, I thought it was Kapinski. I said, you know, Mr. Kapinski, I'm going to tell you something. But really, I've never felt so at ease in my life. You, you guys have, like, taken the weight of the world off my shoulders. Um, I don't know. I feel very, I haven't felt like this in, in many, many years. Somehow I have this good feeling about things will turn out right. I hope so. I'd like to see my kids again. And he says, you know, do the right thing. You know, you're, you're, I can tell you're a nice guy. We're not bad people, you know, but we do our job. But you do the right thing and, you know, you'll, you'll, things will work out for you. And he made me feel good. It's very important. Sitting on that plane, what did you think your future was going to be like? What, what, I mean, what was the worst case scenario for you? Did you think you were going to be a Rascuno or somebody else that you're going to prison for the rest of your life? I mean, considering you just saw them offload 25 tons of cocaine. It's like when I got kidnapped that for 21 days that, it, you know, you go numb. Uh, my life was over. I was on that plane and my life was over. I mean, I... I was looking at 35 years to life, and I, I said, but yet there was a little light of hope somewhere. And um, What was the light of hope? What, was it something that Eric said to you? No, or? He, he, he said, you know, he, he had some very kind words, because he could have said, listen, you motherfucking coke smuggler, now we're really going to fuck you, this and that. No, man, a real professional real you know he made me feel you know me being a bad guy he made me feel good that's how professional um eric was and bob was and uh I'm, you know good people are good people you know they're just doing their job but they could have made me feel like shit because i was a bad guy um and they didn't know you know would you know i could have been the worst of the worst uh whatever but they made me feel good I guess they felt for me, and they, they kind of saw that I wasn't, you know, that I had something good in me. But um, I was looking at life, 35, you know, 30 years life, and, um, you know, I was very sad. I, di I didn't know what. I didn't know what the hell. I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared, and I always— I was going to say, talk about the plane ride back. Yeah, while you're while you're on that plane ride back, is this? I mean, is this what's going through your head then the whole time? And how long does that plane ride take? You take off. You're with the U.S. Marshals. How long does it take before you're back in the U.S.? It took about four hours because it wasn't, uh, you know, a Learjet that would have taken like two and a half hours from Caracas. It took about four hours, and we landed in Fort Lauderdale. And the plane ride, I was just relaxed, you know, keeping to myself. Uh, there wasn't much conversation with Eric. Uh, I mean, I was so 
sad, you know, never to see my kids again. I was just, it, that just took over me. That's really all. Did I, you ask for an attorney or anything at that point? No, I just, when I got to, to, to prison, obviously I, I told them I had no money and I needed a, a public defender and that's it. They named a public defender. What year was this? 2000, August of 2000. But, you know, if you would have asked me, uh, I would have said, man, I I would have been so scared because jail, jail, jail. No, that uh, I was never scared of jail. I was just scared of never seeing my kids again. Um, But, you know, that whole operation journey, you know, I told these guys we should not use freighters. What we should do, if we want to take 5,000 kilos to Europe, you just built a 100-foot, 90-foot center console uh, fast boat and uh, three Caterpillar engines. You can fit 5,000 kilos, four black guys from San Andreas. You put them on that boat, and you cross the Atlantic. Once they get there, they sink the boat. You send the guys back through Cape Verde Islands, back to Venezuela or back to Colombia or back wherever. But you don't need to have freighters with a paper trail that's going to nail you and a bunch of people involved in offices and this to transfer 5,000 kilos from Venezuela to, to Europe. And sure, you know, I mean, we would have been dead anyway, but uh, the organization got infiltrated. Once you're infiltrated, that's why I always said, you know, once you're hot, <laughs> you don't get unhot. Once you're was, it, was it De La Vega is the one that wanted to use the freighters? They were already into the freighters and, uh, you know, narrow-minded, narrow-minded. It's easier to use the freighters and easier to use the freighters. You're nuts. You're nuts. You don't need a freighter. I could build these boats in Brazil and keep them in Trinidad or keep some in Fortaleza. We don't even, really, even have to keep them in Venezuela. And then... You know, we never got there, but that's eventually what I was going to do. I was not going to use freighters anymore because that bullshit, you know. And then uh, having an office in, in Pideos and having an office in Milan and having an office in London. And sure enough, they arrested all my European partners. They all got arrested. So let's talk about you land now on U.S. soil. You're in U.S. custody. Um, you're getting a public defender. At what point? Do they approach you? Because they're always going to approach you about cooperating. They want to know. So did you have that discussion with them? And if so, how did that go? Listen, you know, I always said to myself, if I ever have a legal problem, I'll get a Jewish attorney. If I ever have a uh, a tax problem, I'll get a Jewish accountant. If I have a medical problem, I'll get a Jewish doctor. But um, when you get a public attorney, a public defender, you get what they give you. So the first day that I'm down there, I'm going to meet my public defender. I go down there, and this Cuban shows up. And I go, now I know I'm really fucked. Now I'm going to do two life sentences. <laughs> so this Cuban guy sits down and starts looking at this shit. says 4,600 kilos. Wow, that's, that's before he got to the part that said 25 tons. Then he really flipped out. And I asked him, you know, in, in Spanish, you know, I, I talk Spanish a bit like a Colombian. I said, licenciado, uh, doctor, ¿qué piensa? ¿Cómo me puede ir? ¿Hay solución acá? 
o sea, ¿cuántos años me van a dar? You know what the guy says? Just like that, he says, te van a dar un pingal de años. Like in a super Cuban accent, he says, te van a dar un pingal de, de años. And I go, you know, pingal number one, pingal refers to your dick. Uh, I mean, just to put it bluntly, in Cuban, you know, uh, that re so when he says a pingal de años, it's like the lowest, you know, slang that you can use. And I hear this shit. My attorney's telling me that they're going to give you a shitload of years in a, a slang Cuban accent. I said, I'm, now I'm really, I, I, I fired him at, 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 at that moment. I said, you know, I don't need you. I don't need you anymore. Then I realized I had to get a real attorney. So I go upstairs, and I'm on the 10th floor, and Willie Falcone's there on the 10th floor. And he says, listen, buddy, he didn't even know about how much uh, cocaine they had uh, uh, seized from me or anything. He didn't know. He just knew it was a coke case. And Willie Falcone and, um, uh, recommended one of his attorneys, uh, John Bergendahl. He's a, he's a very good attorney. And uh, hey, I uh, met with John Bergen. Let folks make the connection, Lewis. Tell everybody who Willie Falcone is. Willie Falcone is the man they uh, they did that Netflix commentary on that uh, came on uh, Netflix just recently. Uh, one of the biggest cocaine importers in U.S. history. Him and Sal Magluda. Uh, Willie. The cocaine Willie, cowboys. The cocaine yeah. cowboys. And Netflix did a, a thing on him. And, uh, you know, uh, Sal got 195 years. He's at the ADX in Colorado, too. Willie uh, uh, got 20 years. I think uh, they mixed Sal up in some murders, and Willie wasn't part of that. So, But Willie, uh, I'm, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to be on the same floor with Willie, and he recommended John Bergendahl. I meet John Bergendahl, and he, re he reads it. He says, listen, you're, you're totally screwed here. Yeah, you know, there's not much I can do. If I take it to trial, they're going to fry you. I know for a fact there's 10 or 12 guys in the system that are willing to uh, cooperate and testify against you. Uh, they've got merchandise that's seized. This is not a conspiracy. This is actually seized merchandise. And if they charge you with a second indictment that includes 25 tons, you are dead. You are dead. I mean, I, I do not suggest you take this to trial. This is coming from a guy who's going to charge me three, four hundred thousand dollars just to get going. And uh, you know, he was very honest. He says, "I suggest you 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 cut a, a you know a, you you don't take it to trial." So then I called a couple other attorneys, and then uh, finally I called Ruben Oliva. And although he's Cuban, and I never wanted to deal with Cuban lawyers, he was amazing. Uh, And uh, he spoke to me straight. He says, uh, you know, he, I, I told him, Ruben, but this is impossible. How can they want to give me life if I've never killed anybody? He says, you don't understand. You don't have to kill somebody. The amount of cocaine involved and uh, your leadership role, this goes by guidelines. And it says, you, you know, you're up to life. So I said, wow. Why don't you tell them this? Tell them that just, you know, Let me keep some of the money and let and, and I'll do 10 years. I'll do 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're in a position to negotiate at this point, Lewis. Yeah, yeah it, so because I thought 10 years is a lot of time. And, and he says, Lewis, 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 wait a minute. You don't understand. 
you may do 10 years. But you may do 10 years when you give them everything and you tell them everything and you're completely debriefed and you are the best outstanding citizen in the BOP. That's when you're going to do 10 years. But he, to let you keep some of the money and do 10 years? No, no. Are you nuts? But and for all of our players out there, BOP is Bureau of Prisons. I was freaking out because I said, I'll do 10. I'll do 10. I said, you don't understand. You're looking at life. I go, wow. And uh, that's when, you know, reality sets in and they tell you about the guidelines and this and that. And that's when you have to put on your best outfit. That's when your mind has to be 100%. You got to be focused. You're in prison. That doesn't mean you're going to go nuts. Some people turn religious. Hey, all the power to them. I really, you know, I kept my beliefs. I've always believed in God. But uh, Ivan de la Vega, he got arrested too. He flipped out. He flipped out on that religious note. He went before a judge. And he actually told the judge, judge, I'm beyond all that. Nothing can hurt me. You can give me anthrax and it will not hurt me. So... I mean, he flipped out everybody, but he, he lost his wig. And uh, uh, I don't know what prison does to you, but some people just go very religious. And uh, then they lose focus. Uh, me, I focused on what I had to do. I had to get out. Uh, of course, you know, I had to uh, debrief. That means cooperate. And uh, I wasn't going to do it if I didn't have the blessing of my people from Colombia because my wife lived in Mexico my kids lived in Mexico and I can't risk their lives so my wife had to go down to Colombia and talk to the people I worked with for them to give them the blessing that it was okay for me to debrief who were the people she had to talk to uh Roz was one of them Roz was still out Rasguño was still out uh, Salazar was another one, a guy from the coast, but he wasn't my concern. My main concern is if, if I get the blessing from Rasguño, uh, I can, I'll feel good. You know, I was fortunate. She went down there and she spoke to these guys and they said, you know, we're already kind of trying to open the uh, doors of cooperation. They already know all about us. This guy's not going to tell them anything new. He's worked with us for many, many years. He's made us billions of dollars. And there's no reason why he shouldn't, uh, you know, do the best he can for himself so someday he can see his kids again. So tell him that, yeah, go ahead, do whatever he needs to do. And then my wife asked, uh, he says that there's like a, a balance of $7 million that's owed. Uh, you think we could get some of that money? He says, well, <laughs> wait a minute. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, you're definitely not going to, uh, there's a $7 million is off the table. But just, you know, tell him to do the best he can. So when my wife told me that, uh, I said, well, that's that's some good news. So then I started working with Ruben and we started to debrief and uh, uh, that's when my mind was fully focused on, you know, being smart about this whole thing. Uh, I realized that the, the old world was over. My old life was over and uh, now it's uh but at what point did you come to accept that when at what point do you remember finally coming to that acceptance is that hey my old life is over there is no going back to it i mean sometimes it's like the seven stages of denial you know um first there's you know of grief there's denial then there's anger then there's bargaining and stuff 
when did you finally reach full acceptance that my life as I knew it is absolutely over? I'm never going back to it. The minute I got on that plane, the minute I left Venezuela, because while I was in Venezuela, anything could have happened, you know. Um, but when I got on that plane, I realized I'm going to the U.S. and it's uh, 35 years. And so definitely my life is over. Uh, my old uh, business is over. But now, you know, I thought I was just, you know, uh, gone for good. Uh, when I met Ruben and then uh, we decided to, to work things out, um, I realized my life was over and... Uh, uh, I was never I, I was never gonna work in that business again, but I um, I didn't really worry about what I was gonna do going forward. What I had to worry about was what what I was gonna do to get myself out of that mess. So I wasn't really thinking about am I gonna take a job at McDonald's or am I gonna become a banker or sell hot dogs? I had to concentrate on how the hell am I going to get off out of this mess? And that's when you got to be your best because that's the biggest negotiation you're ever going to make in life. The U.S. government, you know, when you see that piece of paper, it says the United States versus Luis Navia. You know, it's not the uh, city of Hialeah. It's the United States of America versus Luis Navia. So you are royally screwed. And you got to bet put on your best thinking cap and make your best decisions in life because that's it you you act like an asshole you're going to get treated like an asshole you you you, you treat people with respect you're going to get respect and you're going to get the right results you got to really put on your best act and you got to better put on your your most sincere that's one thing with the u.s government you know they'll work with you but you got to be very sincere there's one thing the, that you can't do is lie that's the worst thing you can ever do is lie. Tell them the truth. Did your debriefing start at that time? Yes, my debriefing started at that time when I got the green light. And, uh, you know, truthful. Uh, How long did it last? How long did your debriefing go? Uh, about 13 months. Wow. And during this wow. time, you were in custody. Yeah, I was held at the building in, uh, in Miami. Who ran your debriefing? Um, everybody. At first, I had people from Europe, England, France, Africa, eh, eh, Colombia, Venezuela, everybody come and talk to me. We, we had huge debriefings with people that the, the room was full of people, and some people didn't even identify themselves. Uh, they, they, I don't know where they were from, what agency. We had... CIA, NSA, uh, uh, people that Ruben told me they don't have to identify themselves that they are, they got, I don't know what kind of clearance because, you know, uh, the Europeans were freaking out because before, um, before all this happened, we, we were thinking about starting to grow the uh, Coke in, in, in Africa. That way we wouldn't have to ship it across the Atlantic and save on all that transport hassle, and we were going to start uh, growing it in, in Africa. That kind of flipped them out. So the, the Europeans, a lot of the Europeans came in for, for the debriefings. They were very interested in how far along those plans had, had gone to start growing it in Africa. Um, 
so for, for 13 months I debriefed and um, that was, uh, that's 13 months that you don't get exposed to the sun because the building in, in you know, these federal buildings, they're not prisons where you have open, you know, you know, exercise fields and stuff. This is just a building, no sun. You get no, ex you, you walk out of there, you know, like a piece of paper. But, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, um, I really thank God that he gave me the, the strength to, to keep my head together and, uh, you know, work at this whole thing. Cause this, this is work, you know, you have to put together, uh, your whole case, basically, your attorney can only go so far. You're the one that's got to feed them, give them the tools to work with. So if you're, if you take a bad attitude, if you lose it, then you're, you're screwed. You know, he can't do anything. During that 13 months, did you not, though, kind of get to the point to go, man, screw this? Is this worth this? I mean, because it's like it had to feel like you're telling the same story you know, over and over and over again? Or did you just look at it from a business standpoint and said, look, my goal is to get my time reduced. These are the things I have to do. You know, how did you approach? Because I'm telling you, you know, we're recording for three to four hours. That's a long time. And I'm Murph and I both looked at it when you said 13 months. We're going, shit, I've never heard of a debriefing that went 13 Holy months. Cow. <laughs> well, the thing is that it takes 13 months because, you know, one group comes in this week and then they... Two weeks go by and nobody, and nobody comes in and the next group comes in, you know, then it's Christmas, then it's Thanksgiving. And I was debriefed by, you know, a, a bunch of different countries. Uh, there was so much, 25 years, you know, and then there was, a, you know, ICE and FBI, uh, DEA and all these different groups. And then they want to know about this group. I mean, 25 years, I knew everybody. And... Um, it just took a long time. So what would you estimate was the total time? So it, this was it actually, so maybe we kind of misinterpreted. I was thinking you were going straight for 13 months, but over that 13 months, how long did you actually spend debriefing? Was it three months, four months, you know, six months, you think? I mean, how much time? You know, uh, like I said, uh, um, Willie recommended uh, John Bergendow. That's before we were sitting in the uh, dining room and uh, it was six o'clock news, and we were everybody was watching TV. And suddenly on the TV, it you know comes out you know Venezuela and twenty-two arrows coming out of Venezuela, going to Europe, America, Mexico, and my face comes on TV, and everybody turns around and goes, "That's you." I wasn't even paying attention. And uh, when that CNN news uh, blast came on TV of 25 tons and, you know, they dismantled the Colombian organization shipping to all these nations. When that shit came on TV, 15 minutes later, the goon squad was in the unit hauling me off to the shoe. They came in and just told, pack up and you're out of here because they isolate you because they don't know you know, uh, what your cartel affiliations are. They don't know what groups you're affiliated with. They want to make sure there's not somebody in that same floor that uh, could be a problem for you or you for him. So they uh, put me in the shoe for three months just to figure out exactly. See, BOP is a whole different animal. A DEA knew exactly who I worked with and who I was and all this. BOP doesn't. 
and BOP's got to protect itself and it's got to protect its system. So they, they put you in the shoe for three months and they have a, a, a group called SIS and it's an investigative part of BOP and they investigate you. They, they find out everything about you and then that's how they know where to place you and be sure to place you somewhere where there's not gonna be a, a conflict and they wanna keep things running as smooth as possible. So I was put in the shoe for three months. I took a great attitude. I was put in the top floor. I had a view of all Miami. I said, that's not bad. You come to Miami, I got my own little penthouse. I had to be positive, you know, what the hell was I gonna do? I, I had to keep my mind. And you know, when you're looking at life, your mind can go. I started to exercise. You're, you get arrested in August of 20, oh, 2000, right? And then when did you finally get in front of the judge to plead guilty? Well, I pled guilty. First, I pled not guilty. That's the first time, your first appearance, of course, and they give you that pub, public defender. Then your, your attorney says, listen, he's gonna plead guilty, so then they, 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 they draw up some kind of uh, a, uh, a not, guilt, um, not a plea agreement, because a plea agreement is done. Oh, no, no, yeah, they give you that proffer statement. They, they give you that proffer agreement. And then, uh, you know, you do everything you have to do, you know, the 13 months of debriefing and everything. And then you go to the, to the judge and he sentences. You go to sentencing. And then, you know, about a month, two months later, they ship you off. So, yeah, it took about a year uh, for sentencing. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I just wanted to throw up for the folks, too, because you mentioned SHU quite a bit, and that was secure housing unit inside the BOP. So that's where they would put either at-risk people or, and obviously what they were concerned about with you, right, was with your connections. Last thing BOP wants from a bad press standpoint is to have a high-value prisoner killed, you know, uh, during in lockup. So it's not that you did anything wrong. It's just that it, once they figured out that you what, who you are and potentially what kind of high value you were, that made you a huge target as far as they were concerned. And I'll tell you, I'm surprised though, Steve, I don't know, is I'm surprised is that they didn't share at least some of that information with BOP because you got to think is that if this person's high value, I mean, um, was it, is that just, is that not normal to do? Or do you remember like sharing information um, when you had somebody in lockup? No, they, they knew what the charges were against them and that's about the extent of the knowledge. They didn't know anything about the case. Um, you know, and I, I mean, this is the first time I've ever even thought about sharing information with them. I think you just assume they know who, the, who is coming in, but there are no particulars that they I'm aware bring of. You well, in and they book you and you go through a booking process and you go upstairs to whatever floor they assign you to. For example, I ended up on Willie's floor. They didn't know if I, if Willie was my friend or he wasn't my friend. They don't know if we had a beef in Miami in the eighties. So you know, they got to protect themselves. The BOP is a completely independent unit. And uh, so they do their due diligence. They don't do it as a form of punishment. It's in your case, yeah. it was for your and personal protection. And at that point, um, when they, they figure who you're, you are, when, whenever they transport you, whatever, you know, it's like level five and then they black box you and, you know, the whole thing. You're not, you're treated as a higher category uh prisoner, uh, uh, higher risk, uh, whatever. Higher risk. Um, 
So let's kind of let's kind of put a bow on this too. No reference to the bow ties, but um, <laughs> but you you spend all this time cooperating. You spend all this time debriefing and stuff. Did you ever have to testify? I testified once, and um, you know he he was a very a dear friend of mine, and um, unfortunately, when they arrested him, one of the agents came to me and said, "You think he'll uh, he'll cooperate?" I says, "He's a very intelligent man. He has nothing to fear. Nobody's going to nail him. He's you know he's been a reputable man all his life. He's very well regarded in Colombia and within the different organizations. I think he's going to cooperate, and he didn't." And he's uh, one of the few, few that that has not. And he actually, I feel he lost his mind because he started flipping out, started filing these motions to the judge saying that he was at the third level of the Masonic. uh, Oh, it's the Illuminati defense. Oh, we get it. Yes. That I am beyond your <laughs> rules and your laws and who are you to judge me and he he got one of those prison lawyers uh you know inmates started to file this shit that is so off the wall that when he went went to one of his first hearings he went in front of the judge and he said who are you to judge me and the judge was so nice he said Let's take a five-minute break, ten-minute break. He went back into his chambers. And, oh, who who gave you the right to judge me? He went back into his chambers, and he came back out with his certificate. Federal judge appointed by the president of the United States or by, you, you know, this is who I am. The guy looked at it and says, I, I could have one of those made. I, I mean... This is a serious situation. I got a feeling Wait. this isn't going to go well for him, yes. No, and let me tell you. Yeah, that's the first thing you'll do is piss off the judge. He took it to trial, and his whole thing was that they indicted him after the statute of limitations, okay? And um, and he took it to trial. Now, I worked with him, and his statute of limitations was over in 1998, and... Um, they were accusing him of certain things he did in 99, okay? So when I went to testify, I was already a free man. So I could sit anywhere I wanted in the courtroom. And I knew where, where, where they were gonna sit him. They were gonna sit him in the back. Because when you go to trial, you dress in a suit and tie. When I went, uh, when I went to, to the hearing, I, they brought me in dressed in orange or green or whatever. So he he's sitting, in, and I sat in the back, and I I told him, you know, I, I said his name, and I said, listen, I, I don't know why you're doing this, man. I mean, come on, you you should think about this. This is this is this is suicide. I, I'm it it really breaks my heart, and, and I'm really torn apart to have to testify. The only thing I can tell you is that what I'm going to say is the truth. I'm gonna all I'm going to say is, is the truth. That's the what I can do for you and from and that's the only way I can live with this is knowing that I said the truth it says you know that's the only thing I want you to do you've taken your path I've taken mine but if you keep to the truth I'll respect that and so when I went up there they wanted you know they no 
they didn't want me to, the, the government, it's not like they want you to say, but I had to say everything I did with him. I worked with this guy. I mean, we moved 13, 20,000 kilos, but nothing beyond October of 1998. And I was very truthful. He, you know, he respected me for that. And they asked me, is this guy a violent guy? I says, by no means, never have I seen any violence. He's a gentleman, he's been my friend. It hurts me to be here, but all I can do is say the truth. And no, I've never worked with him. I've moved 20,000 kilos with this guy, but nothing after October of 1998. And they wanted to see something in 99. Maybe he worked with somebody else, but not with me. And that's all I can do is say the truth. And that's the same thing I did for him and the same thing I did for the government. You know, so when you so when you finally went to sentencing, what was your sentence? My sentence was, you know, after uh, Bob took away leadership because I thought, Bob, you know, you brought me here on this indictment. I've been a leader all my life. I've been a leader all my life. But on this one indictment that they brought me to the United States on, my name's number two on the list. And this is that indictment where those idiots from Key West, those Cubans, they didn't even know me. They, they got my name because my partner got coked up and spit it out. But I was not an organizer and a leader in this indictment. And Bob told me one day, you know, Louis, someday I'd like to see you selling hot dogs on Key Biscayne and taking your kids to school. So he, he took a liking. He realized that I was a good guy in a bad business. And uh, one of the happiest days of my life was the day I got a call from, because I, I was... I was scared, I was worried, the anxiety levels because of that leadership role. Steve, you know that's the difference, that's 10 years. That's the difference between seeing your kid at, at six or 16. So one day Ruben calls me up and says, man, I don't, I don't know what the, what the hell you did, but I guess the planets aligned and Bob liked you. He took away leadership. And I go, wow. And I said, I, I don't know, I don't ever know how to thank Bob. And uh, he, he realized that, that I was not a leader, a, a leadership capacity in that indictment. And I told him the truth. In everything else in my life, I was a leader, Bob. You know that. I'm not going to lie to you. I was an organizer and I was a leader, but not on that one. He says, you know, this will give you the time to go sell hot dogs on Key Biscayne. He said. <laughs> Some expensive hot dogs. So. So like Steve said, what was the final outcome? You got the leadership taken away? 11 years. Then I got two years off for the 5K1. Which, explain that. Um, let's say uh, you're sent, you get two bites of the apple. Uh, in, let's say a 5K1 is a reduction before sentencing. So before sentencing, um, you know, I had cooperated and debriefed before sentencing, before going to the judge. And for that, they gave me from 11, they brought it down to nine. So I got sentenced to nine years. Then there's a rule 35, which is a reduction after sentencing. The judge and the prosecutor can leave the door open. When they sentence you and give you nine years, they can say nine years with a possibility of a rule 35, or nine years with no Rule 35, then you get your nine years and you don't have a chance to further cooperate or debrief and get an additional reduction. 
So what you want to do is you get your 5K one and the Rule 35, so you get two bites of the apple. So I got sentenced to nine years, and I went away, and I kept helping the government out on whatever they needed. So then they gave me a Rule 35, and from nine, I, out of nine, I did five. I did a total of five. And if you guys will go back to episode 20, I had to educate Chris Feistel on Rule 35, so uh, he thought I was just a dumb little state and local cop you remember <laughs> which you were but you know you did get that right <laughs> i did get that right no it was you funny know. we actually were chris feistel uh was the uh, dea agent they made season three of narcos about he was the guy him and another guy were responsible after pablo they went after the cali cartel um so you guys you guys most likely you and chris feistel and some other guys most likely crossed paths as well too so like again it's one of those things it's a big world but it's such a small world so Let's close off on this, too, because we're coming towards the end of our time, and I want to find out kind of what you're doing now. But um, you have you have been able to negotiate that down. Where did you go? Where did they send you to do your time at? Uh, Coleman, Central Florida, a nice place. I mean, it's not a camp. And, you know, it's a prison. <laughs> it's not a Federal camp. Federal Correctional Institute, FCI? No, yes. Yeah, and what was it like? What was it like for the time that you were there? You know, how did you get along? How did you adapt to a life to where, you know, you didn't have the cars, you didn't, you didn't have the suits? Look, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. Prison is all about uh, how much time you have to do and where you go. But, you know, if they give you 27 years, you're not going to have the same mindset as a guy that's got nine. So anybody can do nine years in a federal federal prison uh now penitentiary that's a different penitentiary you, you know uh the inmates own the place and the and the guards go there to work eight hours the you know where i was you know there's guys with 10 years 15 years nine years there's a different mindset you're talking to a guy who's got life he's got nothing to lose he'll put a pencil right through your eyeball there's a, it, so, you, you know, it's different. So I went to a, a place where people usually had 10, 15, 5, 2, 1, 6 months. Now, I treated everybody with respect. I kept to myself. I played the drums in every, you know, choir, rock and roll, country, whatever. I read, I exercised, and I worked on my case. You know, I... Um, would you know type they have a typewriter room and i would type my debriefings send them to reuben you know and just worked on my case and uh, kept to myself and, and basically I, I i did good time i did very good time because i read a lot and um that helps a lot and then one day i get a phone call it says pack up and you know the, you know you're gone I, uh, my rule 35 kicked in and the judge uh, set me free. So during the time that you were incarcerated and doing, did you ever have a feel like there was a threat against you or a threat on your life or anything? Or was it just pretty much just um, because of where you were, you just did your time and there was no issues? No issues. Uh, there was, you know, respect because, you know, a lot of people respected the, that, you know, uh, I was part of a cartel and, I, you know, I, I moved a lot of weight and, I guess they figured I was just no dummy. A lot of people would say, hey, Navia, when you get out, can you send me 200 kilos? I said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> uh, they, they, a lot of people there are still in the mindset 
that when they get out, they're going to continue doing what they used to do, man. That's a farther, you know, I knew for a fact that I was, I, I don't know what I was going to do, but I was not ever going to do, be in that Coke business again. Did anybody ever reach out to you after you got out to try and get you back in the business? No, basically, I didn't give my number to anybody, but no, not really, not really. You know, I've helped the government on and off on, on certain, whenever they, they need uh, some help on this or a bit opinion on this or this guy's, have you heard of this guy or, you know, what do you think of this situation? Uh, I've helped them out and, um, you know, I've always kept a good relationship with the uh, different law enforcement agencies. I've been always very truthful, so that that goes a long way. So that's that's the most the best thing you trust can do. is a huge issue, man. You lose that once, you're you're screwed. Yeah. No matter whether it's with oh, law no, enforcement, no. you know, or your own folk. So let's let's bring this. Um, let let's talk about you now. So you get out because the fun part. I kind of waited till now to talk about you. Talked about Bob. You talked about Eric. You you say you told us on the pre call, and I know you mentioned it in the book too. Is that you? Had it not been for getting arrested, you th you said you might have lived one, maybe two more years. I mean, you were a dead man walking in a sense, and you really say, which is kind of weird to say, hey, by getting arrested, these guys saved my life. And now these are the guys that you go out, you have lunch with, you have dinner with. In fact, one of them, you've threatened to move next door to him because you like his neighborhood better than yours. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I don't have too many friends, and, and Bob and Eric are, are my friends. They're my friends. I, I I really enjoy hanging out with them. Two different personalities. They're both great guys. Both great guys. And uh, I enjoy spending time with them, and I, I do. Um, you know, um, if, if I had, you know, I think law enforcement is a great career. I mean, they had more fun than we did. Uh, I mean, it's it's great. Uh, I, I'm trying to get one of my kids into law enforcement. Um, but um, yeah, I, uh, I do, um, you know, Eric invited me to his retirement party and you know, there's a bunch of people there, cops and FBI and DEA and ICE and everybody. And then when they come to me, I said, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm part of the same coin. The only thing I'm, I was on the different side. Eric arrested me, and nobody can believe it, you know? It's really funny. <laughs> That's got to um, be awkward. So what's your relationship to Eric? Oh, I was his big case he made. I was the guy he arrested coming out of Venezuela, you know? That, you know, as a matter of fact, when uh, when I found out about you, Luis, um, I called Eric. Well, actually, I think Eric called me to vouch for you. And Eric and I were friends when I was stationed in Miami back in the 1980s, so... The fact that he did that, that's, uh, be quite honest with you, that's why we're talking to you right now. Yeah, thank you. No, he's, he's amazing guy. He's a trip. No, it takes some vetting too, because we're like, we're like, we're like the Colombians in a sense. You don't want, you, we don't want somebody introducing us that we introduce to an audience and this thing goes south, you know, or it goes bad. So for us too, it's about the credibility because, and hopefully the other thing too, is we don't, we don't do this to, to, to talk about, oh, you're such a bad guy. How could you do this? This has been so interesting, too, because it gives everybody a perspective. What's it like to be on each side of the law? Everybody thinks, oh, it's glamorous. Like you said, you had the shirts, you had the, the Ferraris and stuff. But quite frankly, it's living that way. It's just a matter of time. Like you said, one, maybe two years. One thing goes wrong. You, you find a rascuno who doesn't want to negotiate, and now you're dead. I mean, it's got to be... 
it's just got to wear on you is that you go to sleep each night wondering, you know, what am I, am I, am I going to survive tomorrow? You know, and as the older you get and the longer you're involved in drug trafficking, man, those uh, golden tickets, those golden opportunities become few and far between. It's like, man, you know, I'm, I'm my cat. I'm on, on my, you know, 12th life now. It's like, am I going to survive? So the fact that you're here right now talking with us, that you cooperated and you ended up doing, like you said, what, five years or six years? Five years. Five years? I mean, that's, you hate to say you can do five years standing on your head, but five years now sounds a whole lot better than 35 to life does, right? Yeah. And if, if you got to do them, you got to do them. I mean, that's the price you pay. And uh, it's, it's what it is. Like, for example, you know, I get kidnapped. You'd, you'd think he got kidnapped. He's out of the business. The next day, no, the next day was like business as usual. And I went back to working. I, and then I, I think back, it's who the hell was that guy? I don't even know him. I can't even figure that out. You know, uh, kidnapped once and then got thrown into the crocodiles. You'd figure after that, he'd hightail out of Cancun and, and, and leave the business. No. So I don't, who was that guy? I don't know. Nuts, nuts, nuts. Totally crazy. That's why that, that, that book is like 25 years of the craziest shit that I don't even know who the guy was. That's why they tell me, would you do it again? I don't even know how I did it the first time. <laughs> so, you know, and that's what the, 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 the nice thing about having you on here and you agreeing to, to tell your story is so our listeners get to hear the other side. They hear Morgan and I talk about cops all the time. We have cops on here telling about their lives and things they've encountered. But it's like, you know, when you asked me to, to give you a little blurb for your book, I said this, the beauty of this whole book is that it gives everybody, including a lot of law enforcement officers, an inside glimpse of what goes on on the other side that we really don't know. We think we know, and, and we get bits and pieces. But when you read your book and, and talk to you here you know, in person, it's, it's, I mean, you're gleaning information that you'll never have anywhere else except from somebody that's been on that side. So um, I'm, I'm saying thank you very much for agreeing to come on here. Uh, you know, we're going to do what we can to help promote your book. We got a thing coming up here in a couple of days that I'm going to support you on. And uh, it's, it's been a, you know, I was thinking when we first started this, oh my gosh, this is going to be a long day. But the time flies by when you get into the story and you know time some of the people. Flown. It really has. So uh, our thanks so much for you coming on the show today. Well, hey, a couple quick questions before we finish up. I want to ask one thing. It just struck me because had you really understood what the sentencing guidelines were and what you were facing would that have changed what you were doing at the time? In other words, once you found out that I can get 35 to life, you know, I can do this. If you had really understood the sentencing guidelines, would that have changed what you were doing back then? No, no. Uh, especially after being indicted, once you're indicted, that's it. Well, you know, either you give yourself up or you continue working. But, um, you know, if I, if I didn't change after almost getting thrown into crocodiles, I, I was, <laughs> yeah. You know, I did my business. I loved my business because I loved the logistics. I, I didn't really see the moral aspect of uh, the damage my product would cause. But I was really into building up the business and taking it from distribution to airdrops, to freighters, to 25 tons. You know, it was a thrill just to grow a business as an entrepreneur. And that's how I felt. 
that I was growing my business and I thought I was a businessman. I was just dealing in a cargo that was not uh, legal. But um, I should have thought about that. I should have thought about quitting, but I didn't. I was just so caught up in that world and I was just like in a bubble. It's hard to get out once it sucks you in. It's like it's like molasses, you know, or the being in the swamp. You know, once you once your feet are kind of stuck in there, people say, "Oh, you shoulda, woulda, coulda," and it's like, but you know, people say "shoulda, woulda, coulda," but then when you listen to you talk and you talk about it, it's the commitments, it's the next load, it's this, and, and you know, it's funny too. At, at one point, you're talking about I almost sounded like had people not known they were talking to Luis Navia, they would have thought they were talking to a corporate business development guy who talked about, well, we had a recruitment office over here and we're opening offices here. That conversation sounds just like an international company opening up offices, you know, doing stuff, right? So, but let's talk about that too, because speaking of business, you've, I mean, you've changed things around. You came out, I mean, starting about 2006, 2007, you're back, you're Luis Navia, you know, out of prison now. What have you been working on since then? So, you know, let's talk about, you know, how you've changed your life and what you're doing now. And by the way, we won't say where you're at, but I do want you to give some context. Uh, you've been traveling internationally for your business, the work that you do. And you and I talked about this when we were just doing a tech check. The world has changed quite a bit, right? So, let you know, I mean, from the United States down through Mexico, through Ecuador, down to Venezuela, you know, stuff like that. What has changed right now? Where do you see the real hot spots in the Southern Hemisphere now being, you know, from a drug trafficking standpoint? Wow. Um, this business has gotten so big. It's probably the, the largest economy in uh, South, South America, in Mexico. And it's a poison that, um, take for example, um, while I was working, Ecuador was always on the map. There was always labs in Ecuador, for example. But now I've heard news coming out of Ecuador where, you know, they just blew up a radar that they had put up for, you know, airplane surveillance for drug smuggling. Now, when groups are so blatant about blowing up a radar, they don't give a shit. <laughs> you say, wow. So that's just an example of one little country. Now, look at Mexico. There's so much money in the economy. It just this, this destroys the social fiber. Kids no longer want to become engineers or this. They, they want to get into the cartels. The opportunities are closed off. They have less and less opportunities of, you know, leading a, a normal life. Um, but now the money, money's everything. Money, and this is a business, and there's so much money that it just, it, it's getting completely out of hand. It's growing exponentially every day. And you take the little countries like, uh, Central America. Look at what it's done to the Central American countries. They are unbearable. Those countries are more dangerous. You know, uh, Honduras is extremely dangerous. Uh, Honduras is completely taken over by by the narco traffic. Uh, Nicaragua, uh, even Salvador, Mexico, uh, and now you know Ecuador. You know, you've got uh, the Mexicans and the Europeans and the Russians. They're down there, and then you know. Uh, it's a lot of money that's coming into this economy and uh, it, it changes countries and obviously it changes them to the, for the worst. So, um, you know, it's easy to say, you know, maybe legalization is the answer, but, you know, that, those are big words because I, I got to admit, you know, 
I mean, liquor is a, is, is a nasty substance. Cocaine is a nasty substance. So it's easy to say, yeah, yeah the solution is legalizing. You just can't legalize something like that. It's got to be really thought out. And I wish uh, there'd be more thinking behind it. But something's got to change because this is destroying countries. Well, yeah, if you destroyed, and the other thing too is if you got, let's say you were able to wave a magic wand and get rid of the narco traffickers and just say, let's just pick Mexico and get rid of their influence and their money. To your point, so much of the economy now, so much stuff is so dependent upon the narco money. You'd have, I mean, we've got to figure out a way to transition that out of there because you're talking about the collapse of um, economies or certain areas because they have become so dependent upon the narco money. You know, the guy makes the money, hires the architect who hires the construction company that hires the electrician and sells him the car. It's a whole economy that's based on the narco dollars. And, but the collateral damage is all the violence. And uh, not only the violence. When they're armed like an army is, yeah, when they've got the weapons of an army and they're they operate like an army, those cartels, the Zeta cartel, the folks like that. That's what concerns me is that will Mexico cease to become, cease to be a country and instead be a collection of uh, narco trafficking organizations that occupy Mexico? I mean, uh, that's the one thing I'm very scared of is just the power that these cartels have oh, gained over the years. Without a doubt. And, and, and through history, through time, through the we've seen that they've only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, it, 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 cha- it, it changes the complete mindset of a country. That says a lot. You know, you're talking generations are now growing up a lot different than the, the ones before. And it, it's just a chaotic situation because so much is dependent on it. And, and, it's, it's, a, and it's nasty. You know, it's, it's, it's a dangerous thing. <laughs> Well, let's, you know? let's not leave on a downer note. Let's talk about you for a minute, Luis. So let's do two things. Tell us what you're doing now. Tell, tell us what you're working on now as much as you, you, know, you want to disclose what it is you do. And then the last thing, let's finish up with just the process of writing this book, what it's been like for you, what it's taken, because we do want to pimp out your book, by God. We're, we're pimp daddies, and we want to make sure we pimp this out and get people to buy pure narco available at Amazon and any fine book retailer. So uh, tell us about, uh, again, you know, what you're doing now, and then let's close off with talking about the book. Well, I, um, I got involved in the uh, construction business, let's say. Uh, yeah, uh, we supply materials to the construction business. And a lot of these materials um, we fabricate and install ourselves. Sometimes, you know, aluminum facades or windows, not to get very specific, but uh, number one, you know, you get out and you got to, you know, if you're th- still thinking that you need a hundred thousand dollars a month to live, then your your mind is screwed up. Now, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, well, welcome, fine, I'll save it. I'm not going to spend it, but you got to come out, you know, realizing that you got to work and it's hard unless you come out and you got five million dollars and you know you don't have to do jack shit. You just, but I had to work because, uh, number one, I needed to prove to my kids that I could do something else and I can make it uh, in the real world, okay? And uh, I'm, I'm doing that because I, I want to, you know, leave that 
to my kids that, that their dad did what he did. He was good at what he did. But when he had to do, you know, and live with society and work with society, he was able to do that too. Dad, for many years, was a non-citizen, and he was good at being a non-citizen. At least he was not a violent non-citizen. But when it came up, it was his turn to be a citizen, he was able to do that also. And we were proud of him also. So, you know, basically, you know, the U.S. government gave me a second chance at life, and I want to live it with my family. And you don't need all this money. You just have to, you know, work. You know, I, I've got a lot of stress. I got more stress now than I did before. But, you know, that's part of life, you know, and then, you know, you, you keep going forward. And At least this stress isn't worrying about getting kidnapped by Rascunia or getting fed to the alligators, right? I don't know. Miami welders are a tough crowd. <laughs> you <never know. laughs> Those union folks, I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. The unions. Yeah. Workman's comp. They're a tough crowd. They'll put you behind bars. Let's talk now. Let's finish off. Let's talk about pure narco. I, I'm telling you, like Steve and I have both read the book. We've got it here in front of us. You put everything into this book. I mean, so how did you meet Jesse? Jesse Fink, he's an, he's an Australian. How did you meet him? And what did it take to do this book? And when you got done with the book, what did it do for you other than saying, I wrote a book? Um, Bob Harley always wanted to write the book. But Bob Harley wanted to write it and put more humor into it. Because Bob Harley saw this whole thing as more humor. You know, like, like I said, Magoo. Bob uh, Hardy says, you know, I don't know how you did it, man. You, you, you were just traveling through time and, and through disaster areas, and, you know, you, you were dancing in between the raindrops. And he thought it was funny, and he knows I'm a funny guy, and, you know, we're always cracking jokes with Kolbinski and Bob. But uh, Bob Harley wanted to write it. and uh, But then uh, Jesse came down to do the Bon Scott, the Australian, the ACDC book, and we, he knows somebody uh, that we know in common. So he came down to Miami to interview this person. And um, this person told him, listen, by the way, I know somebody in Miami that has a very interesting story, and I want to turn you on to him. So that person hooked me up with Jesse, and I had been going through some uh, other writers that couldn't put it together. You, you know, it's not the same thing to write a book about a guy who hitchhiked hitchhikes the New York in a week than to put together something that's 25 years. So it takes a special kind of writer to be able to put together 25 years. And that was Jesse, because I got a bunch of mishmash from a bunch of writers I just couldn't put it together. And Jesse's very organized, you know, very, you know, uh, disciplined. He's a very clean living guy. He does yoga. He doesn't drink too much. He's a hard worker, disciplined guy. And we, we, we hit it off. And I, uh, at first I held back a bit. Then I opened my heart to him. And we, we laid it on the line. We, we said it like it was. He did tremendous research. That book has 120 pages, I think, of, of uh, research and documentaries and you know references. It's all documented, super documented, and that takes a lot of time also. And he did it. And um, we spoke for two years on the phone, and then he finally came down to see me, 
and we, we put it together. And it was amazing. Uh, I made a great friend. Jesse's a great friend. He's a tremendous guy. And uh, we put together this book that's, I don't know, kind of wild. <laughs> he threw me under the bus there a couple of times with a couple of the uh, girlfriend situations there. <laughs> it seems we've had a few guests that have had girlfriend situations. Uh, maybe your old partner, Murph, while he was at the hospital. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. JP, you know. So, hey, Luis, final thing here. When you completed this book, what, what did that do for you personally? I mean, how did how did you feel about completing the book? Was it cathartic for you? Was it more just like a goal you wanted to achieve? Or for you personally, by putting everything down on paper now, because now you've opened the kimono, you've unzipped your fly, you picked your favorite metaphor. It's all out there now. Mixed feelings. Mixed feelings. Because remember, I have a construction business to run, and I don't know how some people are going to react even though I, this happened 25 years ago, I mean, 22 years ago. It was stuff that happened uh, 40 years ago, when I was 22, let's say, for example. I don't know how some people are gonna react, and I, I, I had mixed feelings, I said, is it gonna hurt my construction business? Because that's, you know, that's what I wanna leave my kids. You know, I'm not gonna leave my kids, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm leaving my kids, you know, my, my the book, it's in, it's in black and white, but, uh, you know, I, mixed feelings, but I'm very, very happy it's out there and we got together and um, I'm, I guess I'm proud of myself that I, 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 I actually did it. It's easy to say I'm going to write a book. Go write it. Go find somebody like Jesse Fink because I need him just as, as much as he needs me. But we were able to, to work together. And uh, it's tough because sometimes you get pissed. Hey, I don't want this. And, uh, and you have to. And this and that. We had arguments about pure narco. I said, I don't want to live with pure narco. I don't want to be pure narco. Are you nuts? But it's got to be because that's what you are, pure narco. Narco is not a killer. Narco is not a kidnapper. Narco is a smuggler. And you were a pure smuggler. And that's a strong title. And you, you got to, you know, have thick skin to live with that, but you can do it, Louis. So he, he gave me a lot. Psychologically, Jesse was very good. He really was very positive, and he, he was always looking at the bigger picture. But pure narco is a hard pill to swallow. But there it is, you know. In the book, too, he, he calls you out there on a few things where, you know, he's very honest, open and honest. Yeah. And he touches on the morality part, and I said, Jesse, I swear to God, I don't know. I just did it every day, and I, did I think about how some things could turn out and hurt other people? I didn't really think about that. Was I irresponsible? Yes, I was irresponsible. Greedy? Yes. And I should have quit back in 82 when I had seven, eight million dollars and I bought the sugar farm. What the hell? But no, you know, you want to take it to the next level, you want to, and, and you're living this stupid dream because, you know, you're built, you're not building up a business. You're building up a business on swampland. You know, the government came and took it away immediately. Or they could kill you or get thrown in a crocodile. So what kind of business are you building? You know, I was fooling myself. I was living in a dream world. This is real. What I'm doing now is real. And it's hard. Final part here. 
we go to vac- we go to Cancun all the time on vacation, and I know exactly what you're talking about because you got the hotel zone that comes up that strip, and then behind that, you know, is the uh, inland water, and then you're facing the the Caribbean and stuff. And I know exactly where you're talking about. So now that I know that, next time we go there. I'm going to make sure we stop early. I don't want to go by that place. <laughs> Either that or I'm going to go take a picture and say, Luis was here, yes. Or Luis was almost here, yeah. Hey, well, look, let's let's close this up. Steve, any final thoughts before we close this up? Because I know that this is this has got to trigger so many memories for you, too, because you guys literally crossed paths. We were down there at the same time. This was uh, actually was a walk down memory lane here. A lot of things I'd forgotten about that you brought back. Um, you know, and again, I already said it once, but thank you very much for coming on and being honest and telling your story. You paid your debt to society. You know, you, you've got that out of the way. So, you know, shame on the, uh, on your business partners. If they look down on you for this, you owned up to it, which most criminals don't do. So that's a big thing. That's why acceptance responsibility is a big thing when it comes to sentencing. And the other thing is advice for Morgan. Stop going to Cancun. What's wrong with you? Go to Cartagena. Carpet Much nicer. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Much nicer. I'm hey, telling Quint- you. Quintana Roo. That's a beautiful area. Isla Mujeres, Cozumel. Don't go to Cancun. Go to Merida. Merida, where the Chichen Itza pyramids are. Chichen Itza, it's yeah. It's got more flavor. The eighth wonder of the world. At Cancun, yeah. you might as well go to Miami Beach. Nah. nah. Don't go to it's, Mexico it's not- at all. Go to Cartagena. I'm telling you, go to Cartagena, Rosario Islands, Cartagena. Santa Marta. Steve is right. Cartagena is beautiful. It's got a lot of charm, too. Uh, guys, you know what, Steve, I mean, thank you so much for extending your friendship and extending this opportunity. Morgan, you, you've been incredible. Now, guys, we've got to think about getting together and doing something on Rule 35. We have to have an episode because, you know, there, there's a lot there, you know, and a lot of people don't know exactly what's involved, but it'd be an interesting topic to, to dissect a bit. That has been brought up several times, and so you know what we may do. We may do what we a special episode to where we have a couple, three things, which it's all about Rule Thirty Five. Well, I think, and you might have something to contribute that to Luis. I don't know. After a five hundred page book, I don't know. You, it, maybe it's all out of you. I don't know if you got anything left. But so, guys, here's what you have to do: go look for Pure Narco at Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller. It's going to be there. I'm sure Barnes and Noble, wherever it is. Um, by the time this podcast comes out, your event will have already happened. So that'll be, uh, you know, in Miami this Friday, right? Yes. Right. With uh, Books and Books Miami. Books and Books. But even not, go visit Books and Books. If you're in Miami, go visit Books and Books. Go tell them you've heard the podcast. You've heard Luis talk about this. This is the only, and this guy's, again, Luis, let, let me just close up with saying this. And I agree with Steve. Look, we were on opposite sides of the coin. But the one thing I think both of us respect the hell out of you for when you did your time, you came out, you said, I'm going to be a productive member of society. I'm never going back to those ways again. I want to leave the world better than how I found it. I'm going to leave a legacy for my kids. And I'm going to, I can't, you can't undo the past, right? But you can, you can change the future though. And what we're proud of you for is for changing your future and not going, that's why I asked you, you know, anybody ever reach out to you, you know, cause George Young, we had him episode two, his last podcast before he died. He went back so many times to those ways, you know, and he ended up going back to prison several times because of that. Interesting story. But again, we just want to say we're proud of you. And Steve, I know you got one more thing. As they say, one more thing. Yeah, I just and I just want to say congrats to Eric Kolbinski and Bob Harley for a job well done. 
not only did you shut down a major organization, but you saved a man's life. And that's what you're supposed to do in law enforcement. So excellent job, guys. And you know what we're going to have to have? I'm going to have to, I think maybe on our uh, on, on our merch store, Murph, we're going to have to get some Rule 35 ties and bow ties. That's what we're going to have Bob to get, Hardy. Rule 35 ties. He's the man. <laughs> We're, we're going we're gonna to do that. Okay, guys, so hey, this is us signing off. Everybody, you got to listen to this. this is definitely, obviously, a two-part episode. You guys have heard this now. Go get the book, Pure Narco, by Luis Navia and Jesse Fink. Make sure you read it. And look, guys, uh, just enjoy it because this very rarely do you get an inside look like this. Did you leave a lung on the floor there, Murph? <laughs> oh Lord, I think I did. I even worked up a sweat on that one. You folks can't see this, but man, we're getting we're just getting ready to record the outro here, and all of a sudden he goes silent, and I thought he was just going to double over and fall off of his chair. Man, Fl- moving to Florida has not been good for you yet. No, no, it's you know well we wanted to get down here in time enough you know so that we could take care of you know take advantage of COVID and the hurricane season. So hey, you got to do what you got to do. Although I don't have COVID, so don't anybody think I do. Don't okay. don't don't go there, folks. All right. Hey, anyway, but anyway. I'm telling you, Murph, I can see why Luis kind of talked his way out of the rescue, why those guys liked him, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it just, and when we talked with him, just a very personable guy. But let me tell you, the biggest lesson out of this was the way he was treated by DEA Mm -hmm. and customs, right? I mean, the, 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 the agents, uh, it was Eric and, um, Bob Marley. I mean, Bob, Bob Marley, Marley. Yeah, Eric and Bob, Bob Marley, Harley, Mar- Bob Marley, <laughs> yeah, man, Bob Marley. <laughs> yeah. No wonder he was in customs, man, and dealing with all the the, the marijuana. Ooh, no, but uh, yeah, man, we're jamin. But uh, yeah, uh, so Eric and Bob's. I mean, but the thing is, he said is that they treated him with the utmost respect. You know, they mm-hmm. were they didn't come down on him hard. They didn't make moral judgments on him. It was hey, we had a job to do. But Steve. He's sitting there getting ready to fly back to the United States, and he's watching 25 tons, 25 tons of cocaine that they... By the way, I did remember something, too, because he talked about it was in the Orinoco Delta. Well, mm-hmm. there's a famous uh, Irish uh, musician by the name of Enya, E-N-Y-A, and she actually has a song based on that. It's called Orinoco Flow, mm. and it's it's yeah, she does she does some great stuff, but anyway, but... 25 tons. I mean, and that's just what, that's just what they know about. Right. And, and see, you know, if you remember back in our pre-call and all our research, we heard five, seven tons. We never heard 25 tons until we went through a story during this interview. And, and I got to thinking about this afterwards. I don't think we explained, you know, he was indicted for 4,600 kilos in the United States. And that's what he pled guilty to from one of those lighthouse drops. People were probably wonder why was he never charged with 25 tons? That's because it was bound for Europe. So it had no nexus to the United States. No That's jurisdiction in the U.S., yeah. Right. And they were going to Europe because it was getting too hot in the United States. Things were coming down. But still, it, so when you read the press release, so folks, first of all, you can just go to Amazon.com. Go get his book, Pure Narco. Uh, Steve and him will be doing a uh, book launch and a discussion for Books and Books down in Miami, which by the time you hear this, it's already been done. But you know, just just go get the book. If you want to see what life was like, somebody, as he said, I never should have been involved in this business because he came from a life of privileged wealth, the best schools, you know, yep. everything like that. And he still got involved. So, but anyway, such a fascinating, fascinating story. It is. It is. Well, and just to add to that a little bit, I mean, you're getting to see the inside of the underworld 
that even though I worked on all that down in Columbia and Miami and in my entire career, you still learned some stuff. Oh, I was, I was, I loved it. I loved it. That was one of the better interviews we've done. I think it's a masterclass in drug trafficking. I mean, that's what he did. But anyway, if you guys liked it, just head on over to Apple, give us the five stars. Actually, we should start calling it. Give us five kilos. Cause it seems everything has been key. Give us 2,500 kilos, 25,000 kilos, whatever you do, just go over to Apple, give us five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it's work. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield street magic all rolled into one. Head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com for more info about the show. We always constantly updating it. Pictures of this will be on the website. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it takes to make it easier for you to support the show. And big time, big time, big time, go to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have ton, and I mean a ton of good content. We're putting stuff yeah. out all the time. Now, Steve, I say that to say this, is that we kind of have a dilemma. Mm-hmm. We normally let people know what we've got coming up next mm-hmm. week, but we've got so many good things in the mix, like we talked about. You you just talked to uh, uh, Troutman. Sam Trotman. Sam Trotman. Uh, Troutman. Yep. Trotman. Sam Trotman. We're talking talk about Lakika. We've got the guys uh, uh, from the North Hollywood shootout. We've got Dr. Laura Petler, who is doing also another podcast called Life After Happy Face, um, and she is a famed criminologist. Uh, she's got a thing called The Murder Room she's working on, so we have some things where we will actually talk about the investigation into staged crime scenes and a prosecutor that helped her do that. Um, I've got somebody that I know, a police officer who was shot. She was shot in the face and survived by a guy who killed three other people, shot and wounded a deputy. So we've got a lot of things in the... Trisha from GBI? Trisha. Oh, that's right. Trisha from GBI. Now, we won't get to her until December, but what a fantastic story. I mean... That might be another onion cutter thing, you know? That is, man. When you hear she is so passionate about... So like I said, we've got several things in the work. A lot of this, it's like life. Life is a matter of timing. So we're not sure what's going to come out next week, but I guarantee you, whatever it was, it will make sure that you are playing and you are a player in the biggest, baddest game of all. The Game of Crimes. 